You're listening to the Living Word Church Podcast. To learn more about Living Word Church and our service times, visit us online at livingwordli.org. Today's message comes from our lead pastor, Doug Jansen. So we're looking at part two of our series here, Sovereign God, today. And um, a few weeks ago, I was in a store, and the person that was checking out, you know, I was paying my bill there, and the guy was standing there at the counter, and he had this amazing, like, long, curly, you know, golden hair. And I was like, oh, you know, and I, I just looked at him, and I said, you know, when I was your age, I looked just like you. And he looked back at me, he goes, why would you say that? <laughs> now, I would still be a long hair if I could, everybody. I so wish I could. But as the old saying goes, man makes plans and God laughs, right? And in the book of Daniel, we find a God who plans. We find a God who's doing things and is up to things and, and has things that he's accomplishing. And that's why we call the series Sovereign God. But that word sovereign freaks us out a little bit. It's, I think there's some coldness attached to it that shouldn't be. There's like, in some people's minds, I think, and even in my own mind, you hear that word sovereign and you kind of feel pushed away a little bit. You feel like it's a little bit, um, I don't know, just distant. And, and, and it almost makes God feel like he's like real big and he's out there somewhere, but, but just kind of cold and not in tune with the day-to-day of our lives and the suffering that we go through and the hardship. And, and so I want to talk to you today about this word sovereign. We're really going to dive into it, and um, it brings up some questions. The first question we're going to tackle today is, what aspect of God's sovereignty do we often miss to our own detriment? There's a, a part of God's sovereignty that I think we don't really think about too much, and because we miss it, it, it causes that whole like coldness. It causes that whole thing like, wow, God might just be this really big, powerful being, but does he get me? Does he know what I'm doing? Does he understand where I am at? Does he see my suffering? Like, like we miss all that if we miss this one aspect. And it causes us to, I think, misunderstand God, maybe have some anger in our hearts toward God, and maybe even struggle to surrender to God in certain areas. So question number two is, what does it mean that God is sovereign? We're just going to dive into a few of the aspects of God's sovereignty today. Number three, does God's sovereignty turn us into robots? You know, if God is sovereign, then does that mean our prayers don't count, that our decisions don't matter, other people's choices, that are, are we just sort of like brainless beings? And, and like I said last week, God's just kind of moving us around on his chessboard without any ability of us to cooperate with him. Uh, do our prayers actually count or is he just kind of doing his thing? And question number four, what does God's sovereignty mean for me? Like, it's great that God is sovereign, but what does it mean for me? And why is it amazing that God is sovereign? Because I, I think that's something that, again, a lot of us just maybe haven't really thought about this word sovereign a whole lot. But I think those of us who have, maybe we've really wrestled with it. And I hope that you just understand it today. Because I truly believe something, that when we understand and start to look through the lens of God's sovereignty at our life, at our suffering, at our, our failures, at our wins, like at all of it, I think that everything changes. I would, I'm getting to the point in my life where I probably need to get some type of glasses, okay? Um, I was sitting on the couch, uh, just looking at my phone the other day, and my son Landon's on, on another part of the couch, and he looks over at me, he goes, Dad, you're looking at your phone like an old person. And I was like, bro! And, and, and of course, it's because I was holding it out like this, right? And so I do probably need to get some type of reading glasses or something. And it's funny, I've had friends who have had issues with their eyes, and then they put on a friend's pair of glasses, and they're like, oh my gosh, like I see, like this is crazy. And I really believe that when we put on the lens of God's sovereignty, we start to see things 
for what they really are, and we really start to see him for who he really is. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I think today we're going to clear up some misunderstanding about God, and I think that you're going to see the love of Jesus for you. So last week we started this series, and if you missed it, I really encourage you to go back and listen to it or watch it on our app, our website, Facebook, YouTube. Check it out. And what we found out so far on just a very background level is that Daniel was taken from Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar conquered it. He was a teenager. He was probably about 17 years old in what we saw last week. This week in the story we're going to look at today, he's probably about 18 years old. So those of you guys in the room who have a teenager or are around that age, like just imagine yourself taken from your land, serving some king in a foreign land who is a pagan, who doesn't love God, and this is where Daniel finds himself. And here's where we find ourselves in, in Daniel 2.1. It says, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. And so as I said, last week we saw Daniel at about 17 years of age. Later on in the book, Daniel, like Daniel in the Lions then, for example, he's probably in his 80s by then. But the, the book of Daniel isn't written chrono, chrono, excuse me if I can say the word, chronologically chapter to chapter. And so we're going to bounce around a little and just let you know what age he's at. Because I think it, it says a lot that here he is about 18 years old going through all this. And, and there's trouble in the palace. The most powerful king in the ancient world is having some nightmares that are troubling him. And uh, it's not just like the normal dreams you and I have, okay? Just the first service totally lied, by the way. I was really annoyed by this. So be honest, all right? Raise your hand if you've ever had the dream that you're driving and you can't open your eyes. Come on. Somebody has had to have had that dream. Oh my gosh. Am I real? Thank you, Mateus, my man. It was me and one other person. Really? All of you? Are, is anyone lying right now? Because that shocks me. And then some lady in the hallway is like, I have a dream my teeth fall out. Has anyone had that? Oh, all right. Oh, I missed the dream. And now I know. Now I know. All right. Um, some of you guys, maybe you, uh, anybody had the dream, I have this dream a lot, that I'm sitting in school and I'm about to take a test and I didn't study for it. Anybody have, oh, okay, a few more there, all right. All the teenagers in the room are like, oh, that's just my real life. Like, I just sit there, and I, right? All right, um, how about you're falling? Come on, we've all had that dream. You wake up and you kind of bouncing, right? Um, I have a, a dream that, about right now, actually, that I'm on stage and I'm about to preach and I can't find my notes. I can't find what I'm about to say. I also have another reoccurring dream about church. It's that the lights are flashing and the stream went down and the ceiling is leaking. Oh, no, wait, that's just called portable church. I'm sorry. I, got, I, get, I get confused sometimes. Um, but Nebuchadnezzar has these dreams. And the, the Hebrew wording of it tells us it wasn't like he just had a bad dream. It was a series of horrifying dreams that he had that troubled him. And so it says in verse 2, So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. Now, there's four groups of wise men that we find in here. And the first one is in a great translation, the word magician. We kind of think of a guy pulling a bunny out of a, a hat, right? But really, a better word is soothsayer. A soothsayer was somebody that was a priest who they believed could see into the future. Then the enchanters were people who, who communicated with the spirit world. Sorcerers practiced black magic, and astrologers studied celestial bodies. Now, this isn't the point of the message, but if I could just throw this in here, as followers of Jesus, none of us have any business looking into any of that, all right? So, like, you don't need to go to an astrologer. You don't need to go to a fortune teller. Like, A, they're, I'll say it this way, either they're A, kind of like hacks who are just taking your money and have no gifting, or B, have true gifting, but it's connected to the enemy's power, not God's. And so you and I have no business going to any of that. So that's just a little bit of a side. You don't want that power. Trust me. Let's keep going. 
When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and he, oh, excuse me, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is, you ready? Listen to this. This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was, okay, he doesn't just say interpret, he says, Tell me what my dream was and interpret it. I'll have you cut into pieces and houses turned into piles of rubble. So no pressure, right? Some of you guys are going, like, I think I worked for that king once. Sounds like an old boss I had. But this initial request is intense because the king doesn't just say interpret it. He says, tell me what my dream was first, then interpret it. And we don't find that anywhere else in the Bible. Like you think of Joseph, like you think of other people who interpreted dreams. Never does the king say, first tell me what the dream is and then interpret it. So this is extremely hard. Verse 6, but if you tell me the dream and explain it, you'll receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more, they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will interpret it. They're going, look, we don't know what you dreamt, right? Tell us the dream, and we'll interpret it. And I think part of the reason they're doing this is because if they don't really know the interpretation to the dream, they can really say anything they want and tell the king that's what the dream means. And he has no way of proving if they're right or not, right? But if they try to tell the dream and they're wrong, the king clearly knows that these guys are just making stuff up. And so it says in verse 8, Then the king answered, I'm certain that you're trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The king sees right through it. Verse 10, The astrologers answered the king, There's no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. I love this. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. So, these astrologers aren't feeling so confident anymore. Isn't it interesting that they say no one can reveal it but the gods? I thought they were in touch with the gods, right? Clearly, they're not. If only there was someone who could hear from God. If only there was a God who communicated with his people and made clear to them what was going on. You see, that's a powerful thing. And we're getting a picture there of a sovereign God, right? A God who is different, who is big enough to send dreams, tell a person what the dream is, tell a person what it means, but communicate in a relationship. It's a personal God. But that's not what these astrologers and magicians have. Verse 12, this made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and put his friends to death. Daniel and his friends haven't even been asked yet if they can interpret the dream. They're just told, because they are wise men along with everyone else, that they will be executed. Verse 14, when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Daniel's going, hang on. As much as all that, you know, being cut into pieces and houses demolished sounds fun, if you could just give me a minute, I think I can let you know what this dream means. And isn't it interesting that we find this great difference between Daniel and the other wise men? And of course, what is the difference? His relationship with the Lord, right? It's his relationship with God. 
And, and, and what I love here is that we're seeing a God who is personal, a God who is with us, a God who is near us. You see, I think the answer to question number one, what aspect of God's sovereignty do we miss to our own detriment? I think the answer is his presence. His presence. I don't know about you, if I had given everyone a piece of paper and wrote down what one word comes to mind when I say the word sovereign, I think some people might have said powerful, control, authority, plan. I don't know that one of us, myself included, would have written his presence. You see, that's what we miss, and that's what makes sovereignty sound like a cold piece of theology. You know, that's what makes it sound like, God, yeah, you're really big, and you have these great plans, but like, do you get me? Like, are you near me? Are you with me? Do you see me? Do you walk with me? You see the difference there. And so I want to jump to question two, and we'll really kind of hammer in on this. What does it mean that God is sovereign? When theologians talk about God's sovereignty, they're talking about three things. Everybody say control. Everybody say authority. Everybody say presence. And that's the clincher right there. His presence changes everything. See, I think that if we have a big God who, you know, is in control and is in authority, then we have the potential to serve a really scary God, don't we? Like if he has all power and he knows all things and he controls all things, but he's not present, then he could rival any villain that we've ever known or thought of, fiction or nonfiction, right? Like you just go to the movies, you start to think of some horrible, powerful, controlling people in authority who weren't present. You know, you, you just start to list them, right? I mean, you think of Thanos, you think of Sauron, right? You think of Sensei Kreese from Karate Kid, right? Like, you think of any of these powerful people, but there's no relationship. Listen, you think of Hitler, you think of Nebuchadnezzar. Think about this, you ready? Right here in the story of Daniel, we have very different leadership modeled, right? You've got Nebuchadnezzar, who is authority, control, power, but listen, no relationship with his people, so he cuts them into pieces and he demolishes their houses. And then you see God, authority, control, presence with Daniel, with you, with me, right in the midst of all we go through, the big stuff, the little stuff. He's right there, present, communicating, wanting a relationship with us. Verse 17, then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Listen to this, you ready? He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven. What do we call that? When you go to God in heaven and you plead for mercy, we call that something very simple that we all do, pray, right? They, they, they prayed. That's going to be important in a minute. So that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Listen, we can't rush past this. You guys know as we've been going through books, we went through the book of Acts and I'd summarize some stuff. We're going through the book of Daniel. I summarize some stuff, right? Just for time's sake because we don't have forever. So, as I go through, I'll just say, okay, let me tell you what these next two verses mean. And I almost did that with these verses, but we would have missed something so important because it's the answer to question number three. Does God's sovereignty turn us into robots? This verse proves that we are not robots. Why? Because though God is sovereign, though he has control, our choices matter. Listen, our prayers matter, right? What did Daniel and his friends do there? They went and they prayed. They sought the Lord. God, speak to us. You're a personal God, a God in a relationship who wants to use us. And we need to hear your voice and we need your direction right now. So God, we're right in the middle of this whole thing. And since we're not just robots or chess pieces that you just mindlessly move around, 
We're people who can hear from you and have a relationship with you in our prayers. And this time right now with you matters. We're stopping and pausing and we're seeking your face right now in the middle of this because we need your help, right? So God's sovereignty is a beautiful thing because yes, control and yes, authority, but presence. And we're not robots because we live in a relationship with God who wants to hear from us and wants to speak to us. And as we zoom out on the Bible, we see that we're told to pray, to fast and pray, to pray without ceasing. Our prayers matter. Our decisions matter. Other people's decisions matter. And that God wants to partner with us as we seek his face. So here's a question for you. And I would say many of us are doing this, but are you bringing him the stuff in your life, right? Like, like Daniel, are you, are you taking that pause? Like Daniel could have just gone like, yeah, we got to come up with a plan because the king wants to kill us all. But no, he went to the Lord, right? He, he went to the Lord and said, God, speak to me. God, lead me. God, come through. God, give us time. God, do your thing here, right? My question is, are you bringing him your stuff? Are you bringing him your pain? Are you bringing him your circumstances that are too big for you? Are you bringing him your loss? Are you bringing him the good stuff? Like, are you in this relationship with this present God? Verse 19, during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. So he gets an answer to his prayer. And everybody just pause for a minute, okay? Some of you guys are going, of course Daniel got the answer to his prayer. He's Daniel, right? I'm just me. I pray and I don't seem to get the answer. Of course Daniel gets it. Why would he get it and I don't get mine? Okay, so let me just encourage you for a minute, all right? Yes, Daniel got the answer to that prayer and he heard from God. But don't forget that Daniel was an 18-year-old in a foreign land away from his family Missing home, missing mom and dad, missing life, missing the ability to choose where he could go, when he wanted to go. And so don't romanticize away his pain and the difficulty that he was walking in. Because we do that with the Bible sometimes, don't we? We read it. It's like answer prayer, answer prayer. Yeah, yeah. See, this is what happens in the Bible and there's real life. You think Daniel didn't pray to go home? You think Daniel didn't want to go home? Didn't want a new environment to live in and go back to what he knew? And yet here he was in this moment, and this prayer, and this seeking, the Lord answers. Then we go on. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. The next few verses have been called Daniel's Psalm. Everybody say Daniel's Psalm. I think that's so cool because we know David wrote a lot of the Psalms. We know Moses wrote some Psalms. But here is a, a, some, some, some worship, right? Psalm just means song. And so here's some worship right in the middle of this story that Daniel brings. And as he's worshiping God, we see some of the aspects of God's sovereignty. We've already talked about his presence. But here we see, yes, his presence, but also his authority and his control. So let's dig in. And he says this. He says, wisdom and power are his. So you're saying this about God. Wisdom and power are yours. So if you're here today, you're wondering where wisdom and power come from. It's from him. That's who the origination is, right? It's one thing to have wisdom and power. It's another thing to be the source of it. And that's who God is. And now we find six examples of his power and wisdom. First off, he changes times and seasons. Okay, so raise your hand or yell out if you're a summer person. No one yelled out. That was a little awkward. Okay, all right. Fall people, fall people. There we go. All right, winter? Uh, There's like two of you. Yeah, yeah. Spring? All right, cool, cool. So I always think, though, it's so funny, the winter people, man, because Christmas is in winter. What day, day is better than Christmas, right? But he is over times and seasons. And that's such a blessing to me. I got to tell you, I ha- actually hate the cold now that I just said that. I, I hate, despise the cold. And yet, like, just the, the, the changing of the seasons is a constant reminder to me of just God's continued presence in our lives. 
Like that he sustains all things by the word of his mouth. And I think too, like some people say like, oh yeah, back in the day, God just sort of set things up. Like if God's really there and he created everything, he created it, he just set it up and he got it spinning and then he went away. Well, first off, we just saw a God who's present, right? That's a part of his sovereignty. But also think about how the seasons come at different times, you know, and, and how like sometimes you have a really warm winter and sometimes you have a really cold winter, right? Like obviously this isn't just some thing he sent spinning and now it's doing its own thing, Right? God is over seasons, and he's over the seasons of our lives, too. What does God's sovereignty mean for me? Question number four. He's over the seasons of your life, right? So um, at the point of the year that I like best, because my wife's birthday was September 16th, and mine doesn't come till February, which means for the next few months, I get to make fun of her for being old, and I also get to brag because I got the older woman. So it's, it's all wrapped up. But we get to look back now on life, We've been married 23 years, we've been together forever, we met in fourth grade, and we get to look back on life, and we, be, we get to go, wow, like, isn't it crazy? I mean, ups and downs, pain, mountaintops, excitement, fun, sadness. Uh, there was that time I was depressed, and she walked with me. There's been times she's gone through stuff, I've walked with her, right? Like, and you just see, like, God over the seasons, using it all, every ounce of it, every season, right? Now our kids growing up, right? Our son and adult now, are, right? Like, you just see these seasons and, and God at work. And I just want to encourage you today that a part of God's sovereignty is that he's over the seasons of our life, and he's, he sees us, and he's with us. Again, he's present in them all. He has control, yes, authority, yes, but, but present. The next part says, he deposes kings and raises up others. So, we've got to take a deep breath here. And you know, a couple people might walk out on me here in service today, or I might get an angry email or two this week, but I just got to say something here. If our God is big enough to raise one leader up, take another leader out, raise another leader up, take another leader out, right? I want to say something. I want to say, as we come into this new election cycle, a thought or two. First off, hey, we're going to vote. We're going to go ahead and vote and do what we need to do, and we're going to vote for the person we need to vote for and all that good stuff. But we have a God who's a lot bigger than a White House, right? We have a God who's a lot bigger than the person sitting in the White House, the person that was there before, the person that's there now, the person that will be there next, right? America is a generally young nation when compared to the nations of the world. And I think we could just take a deep breath and keep our eyes on him, we cannot control who the next person is in the White House. We, we can't. Like, your one vote counts. It matters. Go do it. But your one vote isn't going to change this whole thing. What we can control is how we treat each other in the process. What we can control is how we love each other, depending on no matter what side of the aisle the other person's sitting on, right? And so that's where our attention ought to be, because the Lord is the one who's going to raise up one leader and, and take out another Okay, don't leave the church. Cool. All right. Uh, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He gives wisdom and knowledge, everybody. Wow. That's powerful because I think some of us need some wisdom and knowledge, don't we? How does God's sovereignty affect me, impact me? What does it mean for me? You need some wisdom and knowledge? Go to him. He loves you. He wants to reveal things to you. He goes on. He reveals deep and hidden things, the deep things in life, right? What does God's sovereignty mean for me? Number four, he reveals those deep and hidden things. Any mysteries in your life right now? Who do I marry? Where do I go? What do I study? Do I change my job? Do I start a business? Do, I, do we stay here? Do we move? Do we stay on Long Island? Right? Like all the big questions the Lord wants to answer. And I love this. It tells us why he can answer these things. It says he knows what 
what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. Just everyone look at me real quick. God is never in the dark. He is never in the dark. You know, we're in the dark all the time. You know, like sometimes literally. Like anyone in the room been cocky enough like me at night? Like you, you go to get in bed and you realize you left your phone in the den and all the lights in the house are off. And you're like, oh, I, could, I could walk it without turning any lights on. I can go from here to right down my hallway and into the den, right? Like how many things do you fall over, break, right? Like because we're in the dark, right? I've walked through that hallway 7,000 times. I'm still going to knock a a picture off a wall without light on, right? Um, When I was in the hospital and I was coming home, Kelly got us a new bed for our bedroom because our old bedroom, parts of it would just spontaneously collapse, right? We'd be sleeping and all of a sudden like her side would go down. One of us would just go flying, you know? And it was like a fun way to live life for a little while, but like I'm coming home with an oxygen tank and like she's like maybe we shouldn't you know and so the bed that we had had nothing at the end but the new bed has a nice piece of wood down here and you know I've hit my knee 7.6 million times on that thing right because I'm in the dark right I, I that's how at times like how lost I am right and the Lord knows what's up ahead and he sees those new things that are there that we're going to bump into and he knows those things we're going to crash into and knock off the wall and and right and there's a way as we're going through life and navigating life for us to go lord i just need you to reveal yourself to me reveal your plan to me reveal your heart to me i'm i just need you i need a god who knows what lies in darkness and can light the way for me verse 23 daniel just he's just worshiping i thank and praise you god of my ancestors you've given me wisdom and and power. You've made known to me what we asked of you. You've made known to us the dream of the king. Sovereign God, you've done what the astrologers and enchanters and soothsayers couldn't do. And it goes on. Daniel 2, 24 to 25 says that Daniel tells Arioch not to execute the wise men. I can interpret the dream. And Arioch takes Daniel to the king. And it says in verse 26, the king asked Daniel, also called Belshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no, wise man. I love that. No. The king's like, well, get out of here. No, we'll keep going. No wise man, no enchanter, no magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery is asked at all. But there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. I just love that he gives God all the glory, everybody. And I just think that's the habit we should be in, in all of life, right? Hey, man, you did a great job on that presentation today. Oh, man, thank God. Hey, man, you really did great on your, your, report, your report card was great. Oh, thank God, man. Right, because it's all from him anyway. That's like the big lesson to Daniel, by the way. It's all his and it's all from him. And he's handing out gifts and talents and abilities and promotions and provision, and right? Like, it's all him. Like, who are we to stand up and be like, I know, yeah, aren't I awesome? Actually, one time, this is actually horrifying and funny. One time, my brother-in-law went up to this guy at, at a church service who had sung a, a song. Like back in the day, they used to do like what they would call specials in church. And like during the offering, we used to pass buckets around and someone would come up and sing. And 99% of the time, they, they were horrific, right? right? But, but this one guy got up, he was really good. And so my brother-in-law went up to him and said, hey man, great job on that song. And he goes, oh, you should hear me preach. It's like, whoa, okay. I, I think he was struck by lightning later. But I just love that Daniel was like, I can't, but God can, right? Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. He's going, okay, so I'm not just going to tell you what the interpretation is. I'm going to tell you what you dreamt. So here is non-robot Daniel, real person in a relationship with God, making real choices, and his prayers matter about to play a huge role in God's plan. Jump to verse 31. Your majesty looked. Okay, now I need you to picture this with me, okay? Don't, don't tune out. 
Um, picture this with me. We're going to be very visual here in our minds for a minute, okay? Uh, he says, you look down before you stood at a large statue. So picture a statue. An enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. Okay, now I need you to picture every part of this with me. The head of the statue is made of pure gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And we're going to see in just a minute that those were prophecies about kingdoms and kings that would come. And it says, while you were watching, a rock was cut. Are you picturing this? So a rock is cut out, but not by human hands. Everybody say, not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. So we're going to see what that whole part is about not by human hands in just a minute. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Now this is amazing, okay? So... We have right here in this portion of Daniel a prophecy that is unlike any other in the Bible. It reaches from the 600 B.C.s in Daniel's day until Jesus' return. And we get incredible detail here. So if you're here today going, man, why would I believe in the Bible? Why would I believe that it's historically accurate? Why would I believe any of this stuff is true? We're about to see some really powerful things. So let's read together. Verse 37 beyond. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he's placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. So remember the statue? The head was gold. And, and, and Nebuchadnezzar represents this head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar ruling Babylon. Then it goes on. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours, which that would have been the chest and the arms of silver. And that was historically, as historians look back, they see Persian, the Persian Empire under Cyrus the Great. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, which was the stomach, right, will rule over the whole earth. We had these uh, stomach and thighs of bronze, and the kingdom there was Greece under Alexander the Great. And then we finally have, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all others. These were the legs of iron. And this was the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire that would come. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute, okay? So remember the statue, right? If you think about Nebuchadnezzar as the head of gold, then it goes down and it decreases in value as it goes all the way to the bottom, right? The different materials that were used, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and eventually the feet of clay. And if you look historically, again, why, how do we know the Bible is true? Let's look at it from a historical lens for a minute. If you look historically... You know, that most important material, Nebuchadnezzar, the, the head of gold, he was the strongest ruler of the ancient world. He was the strongest king and the greatest king of the ancient world. And then as you go down to Greece and then eventually down to the Persians and the Roman Empire and all that stuff, you see that the power went away from the king and was more and more decentralized. So it really went from like Nebuchadnezzar, one man, ruling, represented by gold, and then You go down a little bit, and it's a little less power. The kingdoms may have stretched further, but the one king had less power, less power, less power. And so even that, you look at the Bible, you're like, wow. Like even historically, those illustrations were so incredibly lined up. And then it goes on. It says, just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. 
talking about the Roman Empire. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture. It will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. And so you see that there becomes this whole thing in the Roman Empire. And we just know historically this is what happened. It spreads out. It gets huge. But man, it's a mess. And eventually it weakens and the people become disunited. I mean, how many movies have we seen, right? Go back to Gladiator, all these different movies. How many movies have we seen where one Roman guy was coming against the other Roman guy, right? So how often do you think of the Roman Empire, by the way, guys? But um, isn't it incredible that we see these prophecies um, about the Roman Empire and all that would happen? And some even believe some of this is about what will happen as Jesus returns. Let's keep going. Verse 44, in the time of those kings, here we go, everybody. So we saw a whole lot of manly kingdoms, right? A whole lot of kingdoms made up of people. In the times of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Well, that sounds nice. Nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to the end, but it will itself endure forever. So after the kings and the kingdoms that have reigned the, rule, uh, reigned the world and destroyed and brought all kinds of conflict and pain, and eventually we'll get to a final kingdom, right? And that ruler is Jesus. And I just so love that you see, remember question two, what is God's sovereignty all about? It's about authority, control, and presence. I just love that when you think about authority, control, and presence, they all come to its culmination in Jesus, don't they? Like Jesus coming. Like how does that work out? Well, the Father has a plan to send Jesus, right? And we see authority over sin and death in what Jesus does as he dies on the cross and rises from the dead and frees us. We see control over the most intricate details as the Father orchestrates this plan, right? When he'll send Jesus, where Jesus will be born, how he will die, where he will rise again, who will see him so there are eyewitnesses that 2,000 years later we can still know that this is trustworthy because God orchestrated this under his control. And lastly, presence. Jesus with us, walking in our flesh, walking in our skin, tempted like us, and hanging on a cross in our place. The culmination of the sovereignty of God is all wrapped up in Jesus, isn't it? So that better pull us in. If you came in today going, oh man, sovereign God part two, I guess we're going to talk about how God's really big and he's got control and he's got authority and power. It just seems so cold, seems so distant. Like Jesus on a cross, rising from the dead, inviting us in, a relationship with him, a heavenly father with a good plan, all culminated in Jesus Let's keep going, and we're almost done here. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. Here we are. So God is the symbol of this new kingdom that will be forever in, you know, installed and thrown and will never be broken apart. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. And right here, I'm guessing everybody in the room is holding their breath. Like, I hope Daniel said the right thing. I hope he got the dream right, and I hope he spoke all the interpretation right, because if not, all us wise men are about to be decimated. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor in order that an offering and increase be presented to him. Incense, excuse me. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery. Everybody look me in the eyes for a second. The greatest ancient ruler in the world just said God is the king of kings and the lord of kings right by the way there's an easier way to say that sovereign God that's what we see here 
Verse 48, then the king placed Daniel in high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him rule over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators of the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. We see a God working out a powerful, sovereign plan, but we see him so present in it, don't we? And Daniel was a huge part of this plan. And I just love that I, I think what we could take away from today is that God is working out a sovereign plan with Jesus as the culmination, right? Like that, it's all wrapped up in him. Sovereignty, authority, control, and presence. So what have we seen today? Well, what aspect of God's sovereignty do we miss to our own detriment? His presence, his nearness, his closeness with us, right? A few weeks ago, I uh, finished up the book of Acts. And does anybody remember the phrase, that made-up phrase that I gave you guys, the blank of God? Just yell it out if you remember it. The withusness of God. Remember that phrase? It's not a real word, right? But it's just such a beautiful way to talk about how God is with us. And then my dad came the following week and talked about Joseph and how God was with Joseph. And here we are again, and we're we're just reminding you of the presence of God, even in the midst of hard and difficult circumstances. Because otherwise, I think if he's just strong and he just has authority and control, but he's not with me, I'm in trouble. I I don't don't know that I want to follow that God. But if he has authority and control and he's with me, sovereignty takes on a beautiful meaning. What does it mean that God's sovereign control, authority, presence? What is, or excuse me, does God's sovereignty turn us into robots? No, Daniel's invited into a relationship. You and I are invited into a relationship with our great God, and he longs for us to pray and talk to him, and, and like Daniel, pause and say, Lord, we need you, and come through and give me wisdom. And then we see Daniel worship, and we see Daniel's psalm come out, right? What does God's sovereignty mean for me, for you? He's with you. He changes seasons. He's powerful enough to raise up one leader and and put another in his place. He gives wisdom and knowledge. He reveals deep and hidden things. What do I do with my life? Where do I go? Is this the one for me? Is now the time? And lastly, I left off one on that list of things that God's sovereignty does for us, and that's forgiveness. In his sovereignty, right? In his understanding of how the world would progress in his story and his plans for the world, he knew that we would need someone to forgive us. And if, 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 if I know we're unimpressed with that for some reason, right? And we've just heard it so much. But if we didn't have any of the other things on the list, but we had forgiveness and we had him, then, then we have everything, right? Like I, I, there's things in my life I wish were different, trust me. There's things in my life I wish God would, would be changing. Come on, do it quicker, move, change. Why aren't you answering this prayer? I need, I need this now. I need this soon. I need it this way. But if at the end of the day, I have a God who, as I can look back on my life, I see him, man, man. And we've said this before. We've kind of joked about this before, man. Thank God he didn't answer that prayer, right? Thank God he said no there, because now I can see, right? I'm not in the dark. I'm, I'm, I'm in the light on that decision, right? And so... As a lot of the guys like to do, right, they call it Monday morning quarterbacking, right? You look back and you're all, oh, that guy, that guy who's probably one of the greatest athletes in the whole world. Here's all the things he did wrong. And the next week he has a great game and it's like, he's the best, right? Like, and don't we do that with God? So like we saw last week, what, what does it look like just to surrender to him? God, control, authority, presence. I'm going to bring you my stuff. I'm going to bring you the stuff I wish were different. And I hope you know that I want to answer as many questions as I can in a sermon, but a sermon is also meant to be a springboard to further conversation. So maybe you're here today going, yeah, but Doug, you don't know this part of my life. You don't know where I feel like God let me down there. Well, then we talk about it, right? 
We have conversation around it. We bring it to the Lord together. And so please, let's do that. But today, I pray that you're encouraged. I pray we could take a deep breath about all the political stuff. I pray that we could take a deep breath about all the personal stuff in our lives, even our church and our future and our building and all that. Like, are you seeing we have a really big God and he's with us and he's present? And these things that are stressing us out and we're losing sleep over and I'm preaching to my own soul right now, man, he's got us. He's got it. And he's got a way of working things out, even in our losses. It's amazing what he's able to do. You're not a follower of Jesus. It's all really about him. It all comes together in him. And I hope today you're seeing how much you need him. He loves you. He wants a relationship with you. He died that you would know him. I just encourage you today to put your trust in him. Let's pray together. So God, thank you so much that we can come to you, God. Thank you that you do have all control and authority, but that you're a personal God. I thank you that you're not cold and you're not distant and you're not scary. I thank you that you could be. And I thank you there's times that you have displayed within the scriptures and history your power and that you are a just God. But God, Jesus' coming has changed everything for us because now we get to come in close, Lord. Sure, some of your characteristics without others at play would be pretty terrifying, but thank you that you're not a God of just one characteristic. You're not a God of just control, a God just of authority. You're a God of presence. Thank you that we're not robots. Thank you that you choose to include us in your working out of your plans and our prayers matter, our choices matter. And I thank you that you use it all for good. And so we come today, we want to just enjoy this sovereign God. And I, th- I just pray that the coldness has been taken out of it. I pray that the, the fear, the, the, the sinful fear has been taken out of it as we as we recoil from you at times, I just pray that you draw us close, God. I would just encourage you now, just maybe just picture. I know I've been talking for a while, so don't do my voice out, but, but just if you could just picture for a moment your Savior, just arms stretched out to you. Like, that's the picture here. I mean, depending on when you picture him, he's bloody, he's just a mess covered in in sweat and blood and flesh torn apart, arms open to you. And then he's later risen, arms open to you. And he longs for a close relationship with you. That's what sovereignty looks like. You think of Jesus, you think of the smile on his face, you think of the love in his heart, you think of all that he endured for us. It's the culmination of the sovereign plan of God right there. So you can bring him your stuff today. You can bring him your pain today. You can bring him your celebration today. not a father of Jesus and you want to put your trust in him, I'd love for you to pray with me now. You could just say this quietly. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for your love for me. Thank you that you desire a relationship with me, God. Thank you that you rose from the dead and that you have forgiven me. I have access to you, God. So draw me close to you. Forgive me of my sin. Make me yours. Put your spirit in my life. I thank you for this awesome gift.